this many lectures about evaluating teaching and understanding what uh, affects student learning and the quality of teaching and what doesn't. I always put this material last in my course on classroom management and discipline because if you go through this whole course and you look at all five approaches and you start thinking how you're going to put all of this information together in your class, I like to uh, conclude by getting your attention back to the, the bigger picture, what really makes a difference in how your, how your teaching affects student learning. And I'm going to try to get rid of some myths and I'm going to try to point you towards what really, really matters and what you should focus on as a teacher. All right, here we have evaluating teaching, what's important and what's not. All right, first thing that things that don't seem to affect students' learning. The first thing is teachers' personal characteristics except for communication skills. Uh, you will be glad to know this. Uh, there's a, a body of research, many, uh, much of it is quite old, goes back into the early 20th century, trying to correlate or find some sort of uh, relationship between characteristics of the teacher and student learning. You'll be glad to know that there really isn't any. Doesn't matter if you're male or female. The, your race doesn't matter. Your ethnic uh, background doesn't matter. Your, the socioeconomic status you came out of doesn't matter. Nothing about you as a person affects your teaching except your communication skills, all right? So you're there uh, except for your communication skills. Nothing about you is going to affect your teaching positively or negatively. Sounds like you need to pay attention to communication skills, all right? second and third thing, things that don't seem to affect students' learning. One is the teacher's personal mannerisms. When I uh, work with beginning or experienced teachers, uh, frequently I'll ask them to videotape their teaching and then critique it, even on their, either on their own or with me. Uh, I've also done a good bit of this at the college level with, with various professors. What happens oftentimes is when the person uh, views his or her videotape, they tend to focus on things like how often they say, um, or in my case, I'll get on a, a jag where I'll say, all right, frequently. You may have noticed it in some of these videotapes. Or how often I say, uh, okay. Um, little errors in speech, disfluencies, pronouncing a word wrong. Um, I once worked with a faculty member, a, a professor, who was really uh, focused in on how he looked from behind. When he was teaching, he would turn around to write on the board. The videotape saw him from behind. And he just sort of was fascinated by that. And he said, you know, he'd never known what he looked like from behind. And the, what he looked like from behind is just an ordinary human being, nothing spectacular <laughs> or extreme. Again. When people see themselves on videotape teaching, they tend to focus on things that aren't important. You will find some teacher evaluation scales that will mark you down for things like saying um a lot or, or having some sort of repetitive phrase like okay. Um, I've had people tell me that when they see themselves on videotape or hear themselves on audio tape, 
uh, they think their voice is too high and squeaky. Or one woman told me she didn't realize she had such a stupid laugh. Well, her laugh wasn't stupid. And none of those things are important. They don't affect teaching unless the personal mannerism is so severe that it interferes with communication. I have worked with teachers who had speech impediments, who stuttered, who um, uh, did not pronounce words correctly. Again, unless it is so severe that it actually interferes with communication, even, even speech disfluencies don't interfere with teaching and learning. All right? Um, the teacher's education beyond a reasonable amount also doesn't really affect students' learning. Um, just sort of a rule of thumb, you need to have enough education and enough information so that you go beyond or to the level of the learners you're teaching and enough beyond that you have a context for understanding the information, answering questions, dealing with uh, things that are unexpected. So if you can kind of generally use that as, as a guidepost to understand how much you need to know about a subject or a topic in order to teach it. I repeat, you need to know two, what your learners know. You need to know what you're going to teach to that level, and then a fair amount beyond so that you have uh, context and understanding, all right? But if you reach that point and then go on and get more and more and more and more, you won't necessarily improve the quality of your teaching. And if you're going to teach third grade uh, and you have a PhD, that's not going to make you a better uh, third grade teacher. Uh, somewhere in the bachelor's degree area, you should acquire all the content knowledge you need to teach the third grade class. If you think about it, if you have a bachelor's degree from a decent university and a really good general education uh, component, you probably know what you need to know to handle the P-12 curriculum in terms of facts and information and subjects and topics somewhere up into the high school level, maybe um, lower level of high school to mid-high school level. If you've got a bachelor's degree from ETSU and you can't handle third grade curriculum, we, we may take your degree back from you. Uh, you should know enough. You should know plenty. Now that doesn't mean that when you get in the classroom you are not going to have to uh, do some review of your own skills and brush up on uh, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division of fractions. You haven't used it for a while. Uh, you may have to, re you know, review, get your skills back up in order to teach it to whatever level, um, somewhere around fourth grade, fifth grade, whatever. Uh, that also doesn't mean if you're going to teach a, a science unit on social insects, that doesn't mean that you have to get out some books and get out the internet and do some uh, learning about social insects. What I'm saying is that you should be able to handle the content. It shouldn't be alien to you. Um, what you're going to find 
is when you go into the P-12 school system. What you need to learn is what curriculum is generally appropriate for different age groups. Uh, I haven't worked with elementary in so long that I don't remember when you teach the various um, uh, arithmetic operations. You go into t third grade, you have to learn, you know, for these kids and their ability level and their background, what is the, uh, what are the arithmetic uh, items, what are, what are the math concepts I should be teaching them. But you should be able to handle them. Uh, so your education beyond a reasonable amount doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you have, let's say, a minor in Spanish or a major in Spanish. If you're a good student, you really learned it, and you're going to speak, teach Spanish one. You've got plenty of, of material with that minor. Spanish two may be probably okay. Where you're going to have difficulty is when you start teaching Spanish three, Spanish four, with just a minor. Or if you uh, don't have a really good oral oral comprehension, your Spanish background is primarily uh, uh, reading, writing, then you would have trouble simply because you don't know enough. Um, again, uh, biology one, uh, if you've had a good general education with a, a good science and biology background, the biology one textbook in high school shouldn't be alien to you. There may be concepts and facts you don't know, but you should be able to understand the book. On the other hand, you start teaching chemistry, you didn't have that in your general education program, you're going to be lost, all right? So education beyond a reasonable amount, knowledge beyond a reasonable amount, more and more and more won't make you a better teacher. All right, teacher's experience after the first few years. Um, I don't know if this is if good news or bad news. Typically, beginning teachers uh, go through about a four-year learning process. Somewhere around year four, beginning teachers become mature teachers. That's when they really hit their stride. Um, I would hope that experience beyond that makes improvement in teaching ability and uh, teachers become more effective. There isn't much research to support that. What older teachers do have, experienced teachers do have that beginning teachers don't have are called schema. They have mental structures about classrooms and instructional processes and what works and what doesn't work. If you're going to be a successful teacher, you generally have those schemas in your mind by about the fourth year of teaching. Okay? All right. So, what things do make a difference? What does seem to affect student learning? First thing is teacher communication skills. I'm going to talk more about teacher communication. Teacher talk is different from regular talk. The way teachers, effective teachers, talk in the classroom, communicate in the classroom, is different from how they talk in ordinary life to family and friends and people they interact with. Communication skills. 
organization of management and management of course and instruction. I hope throughout this course you have gotten that theme. Organization and management of the classroom and of instruction has a tremendous effect on student learning and retention. Um, again, if you organize your classroom well and you run it well, but you have students do busy work, they will behave, your classroom will look good, but they won't learn anything. On the other hand, if you design brilliant, sparkling, innovative, progressive lessons, and you can't get kids to actually calm down and engage in those learning activities, they don't learn anything. By now, you should understand that you need both pieces. First of all, you need an orderly, well-organized classroom in which students behave and they actively engage in your learning activities for the maximum time possible and good, effective learning activities so that when they engage in things, they actually learn stuff. And you've got to get both of those pieces together. Organization, management of the course and the instruction, student behavior, really critical for learning. Amount and quality of instruction. I emphasize this. The more times, the more time, the longer students spend actively engaged in learning activities, the more they learn. Uh, particularly at the upper grades uh, and in, in, on into college, the more we can get students to study, to actually do their reading, to engage in certain kinds of preparatory activities like um, answering questions, looking up material, the more they learn. All right, teacher communication skills. What makes a difference? Enthusiasm and clarity. There's a uh, fairly big, messy body of research uh, trying to link teacher behavior, teacher communication skills, and student outcomes. It's real messy. But if you back up from it and take a big overview, two dimensions seem to emerge. You can call the two dimensions different things, but I have chosen to call them enthusiasm and clarity. And you find those two terms often used. Um, they are high inference variables which means that the word enthusiasm and the word clarity very broad and relatively vague. In order to understand what's going on, we're going to have to define these two high inference variables more specifically with some lower inference variables, some things that are more specific, maybe more measurable. Uh, enthusiasm is some kind of big, broad, interpersonal dimension, some sort of connection at the personal level between teachers and students. It doesn't necessarily mean the teacher is your buddy, the teacher is your friend, but there's some sort of life in the teacher, some sort of uh, commitment, some sort of engagement, 
something that reaches out to students and communicates on a personal basis, not just a fact, knowledge, information, concept, skill level. Um, students, uh, my college students, often say something about caring. They need to know that teachers care for them. And this is kind of frustrating sometimes to college professors. Um, what do you mean I have to care about you? Well, I care about you, my students, in the sense that I care about all human beings. And, you know, my job is to educate you. Uh, I have a tremendous concern that you uh, go into your classroom if you're a beginning teacher, uh, knowing some things that will help you survive in the profession, uh, that will help you do good for kids and not do damage. So I have that kind of concern. Personal concern's a little harder to develop. Uh, to me, it requires some, some personal friendship. There's not a lot of opportunity for that in uh, traditional classes. There is even less opportunity in an online class. However, I do get to know you remarkably well through your written assignments. Okay, so it's not necessarily caring. Younger students probably need more of that than older students, but every student needs some kind of connection with an instructor for maximum learning. Clarity is simply another word for clearness, and we're going to talk about some more specific lower inference uh, aspects of clarity and communication. All right, first of all, let's look at enthusiasm. What is enthusiasm? Uh, I often ask students, how do you know if a teacher's enthusiastic? Okay, here's some things. Number one, energy level. A teacher who is perceived as enthusiastic projects a certain energy level. A non-enthusiastic teacher is real unenergetic. One of the disadvantages of videotaping on television is that television is a relatively cool medium. Uh, teaching on television is cooler than doing exactly the same thing face-to-face -face, uh, with people in front of me, with students. So being videotaped and having my uh, person filtered through this cool medium tends to reduce your perception of my energy level. Uh, if you look at professionals, uh, Oprah, uh, other people on television, my favorite 30-minute cook person, Rachel Ray, they just bounce and they really do this extreme stuff to overcome the coolness of the medium, to project energy. All right, effective teachers project a high energy level. You don't have to bounce off the walls, but you have to act like you're awake, alive, and just kind of glad to be there. All right, and students can tell if you're not. Voice modulation. Uh, people typically tell me that enthusiasm uh, is reflected in changes in pitch, or they will give me the negative, which is not a monotone. So voice modulation, pitch modulation, 
speech mannerisms that, again, seem to uh, communicate that the teacher is engaged with the material, is engaged with the activity, has some life in her or him, and is projecting that kind of, of, of engagement to the students. Facial expression. Um, teachers who are perceived as enthusiastic smile, frown, change their facial expression to be appropriate to the situation, to be appropriate to the topic, to show uh, whatever emotional context, emotion the context calls for. So facial expression, not having a poker face, not having a monotone voice, not being real draggy and low level. Mobility. Again, one of my uh, handicaps here is that I'm not, uh, it's not easy for me to move around. In a traditional classroom, uh, teachers who are perceived as enthusiastic move around, side to side, front to back. Okay, they're a moving target. Direct expression. Now, typically students do not name this one. It's not as obvious, but you can communicate enthusiasm by directly uh, expressing enthusiasm by saying to students, this is really interesting. They may be going, yeah, okay, but you say, all right, this is really enthusiastic, you know, this is really interesting, and you're expressing your own enthusiasm. I like this. This is interesting to me. You're going to enjoy this. Uh, you may find this uh, a little bit puzzling at first and a little bit difficult. But when you get into this, you're going to find this is really neat, direct expression of enthusiasm. Um, I've had teachers who jumped up and down and said, wow, and, and uh, uh, threw, <laughs> I had a teacher one time in college who threw little treats and pieces of candy to students who answered his questions correctly. Uh, if that fits your style, you can do it. You don't have to. But direct expression of enthusiasm. Again, um, acting like you're alive and glad to be there. And sometimes it is necessary to fake that enthusiasm when you don't feel so good. Uh, you got a little bit of headache, it's the end of the week, you're dragging a little bit. You still need to express that kind of enthusiasm. I'm not talking about doing violence to your basic personality. If you're basically a low-key, mellow kind of person, uh, that's not necessarily bad. That can make a very effective teacher who calms students down. What I'm talking about is positive affect, and it can be quiet, quiet, very quiet, but it's that glad to be here, paying attention, glad to be alive, glad to be teaching you some neat stuff. All right, direct expression and eye contact. Uh, many people will name this as their first indicator of enthusiasm, eye contact. Looking at your students, looking in their eyes. Um, once in a while, if you're going to speak to a large group, you'll be told, well, don't look in their eyes, just look at their forehead. Uh, you, may, you may have heard that uh, sort of tip. That doesn't work. If you look at people's forehead, they know you're looking at their forehead. They wonder, why is she looking at my forehead? 
uh, when you work with a, a group, any group, make eye contact. Also, keep your eye contact moving from person to person, one side of the room to another, front to back. It communicates that personal connection, and just incidentally, it communicates that you are alert and supervising your students. All right, eye contact. All right, now clarity. What's clarity? We're going to be clear about clarity. Teacher talk is more explanatory than regular talk. It is more highly structured than regular talk. It is more redundant than regular talk. And it is slower than regular talk. Now this is really important for because beginning teachers and even experienced teachers who have trouble uh, with teaching don't understand that teacher talk is different from regular talk. There has to be some changes. It's different. All right, let's go through each of these. More explanatory. Well, you're teaching, right? You're explaining. If you go all the way back to talking about rules and procedures, I said don't explain, teach. I mean, I, excuse me don't tell, teach. Here is the difference between telling and teaching. Much more explanatory than just telling. All right, examples. When you're explaining, you give examples. You may even give lots of examples. You may give positive examples, and you may give negative examples. Application. Ways, you, you give ways to take what this thing is you're teaching and apply it. Problems, definitions, you define terms when you're being highly explanatory. You don't just use a word and assume everybody knows what you mean. You explain, you define your terms. Demonstrations, you show people how to do whatever it is. Pictures, you use a lot of graphic information, a lot of uh, specific concrete uh, pictures, photographs, charts, diagrams, whatever. Objects, you know, here it is. We're not just going to talk about a tennis racket. We're going to actually look at one. I'm going to demonstrate, and then you're going to apply it. Uh, we're not going to just uh, talk about our science lesson. We're going to actually look at uh, sedimentary rocks, metamorphic rocks, and igneous rocks. We're, we're going to touch them, and I'm going to show you. So much more explanatory. Teacher talk is much more structured than regular talk. Ordered ideas. Uh, back when we were talking about instructions, I said write your instructions out, put them in order, and present them to students as a series of steps, one, two, three, first, second, third, first, next, then. Order ideas. And uh, numerical ordering, first, uh, you know, sort of chronological, is not the only way. You can order from big to small, 
uh, most important to least important, whatever. But you order your ideas. You put some structure around them. Linked ideas. All right. First, we're going to talk about um, the causes of the American Revolution. And later in the course, when we get to the American Civil War, here are three basic concepts that we're going to link. I'm going to tell you that now. We're going to look at them in relationship to the American Revolution. And I'm going to remind you when we get to the Civil War. And we're going to pick up those three ideas again. We're linking our ideas. Lists. Um, a wonderful phenomenon when you're teaching is if you say a number. There are three main causes of the Civil War. Students start writing. It's like magic. Um, if you say, uh, here are, and you show a list, and you say, here are the main people who have done that. Students start writing. They start taking notes. And, and it's wonderful. And you say, okay, why did you suddenly, you've been listening to me, why did you suddenly, when I give you this list of things, three reasons or the main whatevers, why do you start writing? And they'll invariably tell you, well, it's going to be on the test. Uh, students have learned how to do school, and they know when you start giving them lists of things, three main reasons, meh, 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 test item. So give students lists of things. Numbers. First, second, third. All right. There are seven reasons. Uh, there, I want you to know. There were ten major thinkers. I want you to be able to discuss three of them in detail. Give them numbers. Sequences. First, second, third. A, B, C. Cause and effect. Link students' ideas in this cause and effect. I keep using my history uh, idea. If you look at the United States in the Revolutionary War and then in the Civil War, you can start identifying certain causal factors in the early development of this country that led into, caused the American Civil War. And uh, you will also find that our sort of broad social interpretation of what caused the Civil War is much more complex, uh, is, is much more simplistic than reality. Reality was much more complex. All right, cause and effect. This is connected to this. This caused this. Gestures. Um, waving your hands. And again, I get people who look at themselves on videotapes and they say, oh, I wave my hands too much. There's no such thing. Uh, you do whatever your style is, but you can actually keep students alert by some movement and some, some hand waving. But your hands also and gestures also help you structure people's thinking. If you're talking about first, second, third, fourth. If you're talking about uh, big causes, little causes. If you're talking about any kind of structure, process, scheme, whatever, you can actually model that for students. You can say this, this, this. Okay? Gestures.
pauses, pauses for students to think, telling them something, pausing, letting them think, see if questions emerge. You can also uh, actually talk about a pause. You can say, all right, now I've, I've told you these three things, and I've, they're up here on the board or the video projector. Stop for just a second. Read these to yourself. See if any questions come up in your mind. Make students think. Make them spend some time seeing if they have questions. Pauses. Clues. Giving students hints. Uh, helping them figure things out. Uh, again, depending on the age of the student, uh, trial and error is not necessarily a good learning technique. Students who uh, are weak, immature, beginners, whatever, often get frustrated by trial and error. Uh, you will actually see people try again and again and again a certain answer or approach that didn't work. It's really crazy. It's like, why do they do that? Um, clues can help learners go through a problem-solving sequence or help them uh, convert simple random trial and error into a more structured approach to getting the right answer. So clues, hints, they can also make your instruction more interesting. All right, more structure, rhetorical questions. Now what do I mean by a rhetorical question? It's a question you ask, you don't, in, you don't intend for anybody to answer it, you go ahead and answer it yourself. Now what do, what do I mean by rhetorical question? Asking a question for which you do not expect an answer simply to get students to think. You use a term in your instruction like uh, second in-ray. And you say, now, who was second in-ray? Second in-ray was the Theban warlord who founded the 18th dynasty, whatever. It's a question to get attention, to get thought, and then you proceed to answer it. Or in some cases, the answer is obvious, and you don't have to actually provide the, the answer. You just keep on going. Rhetorical questions. Any relationship of idea, ideas in your instruction helps students make connections. And I say, remember Sesame Street? If you watch Sesame Street, uh, one thing they do on a regular basis is helps do, uh, the children develop their uh, understanding of connections between ideas. Uh, they do games like which of these four things is not like the other ones. So you have the concept of not like the others, not like, different, and the idea that you identify some attribute of that fourth item that it does not share with the other three. So you're starting to deal with categor categories, categorization, multiple attributes. Uh, these attributes are the same. This one is different. Orange, apple, pear, bicycle, fruit, edible, whatever, not fruit, not so you're starting to help kids form categories. 
other Sesame Street categories, under, over, before, after, then, now, um, whatever. So anything that helps students learn and relate information to various kinds of con concepts and categories. Okay, any relationship of ideas helps. Now slower. Um, in these video lectures, you may notice that sometimes I go very slowly. Since it's on video and it's a cooler medium, and I go more slowly than ordinary speech, you may say, oh, this is terrible. Teacher talk is more, uh, is slower, has to be slower. When I show my students videotapes of classroom interactions, like I have um, an hour of a teacher teaching a fourth grade language arts lesson followed by a math lesson, and I turn off the lights, my students get sleepy. And I have to tell them, don't get sleepy, wake yourself up, pay attention. What happens is the pace of the instruction for fourth grade is so slow. It's also structured. It's also much more highly explanatory. And so there's a tendency to, uh, if you're an adult, say, I got it already. Okay, I got it already. I got it 15 minutes ago. Now, fourth graders didn't get it 15 minutes ago. Teacher talk is slower. What happens in instruction that uh, beginning teachers often don't understand is that you need to present and deal with content much more slowly. Beginning teachers often want to tell students everything they know about a subject. You just graduated from college, you know all about this subject, so you just want to share all your knowledge with the students. And beginning teachers often think that you just go in and you tell them what you know. You start at point A, and then you tell them B, and then you tell them C, and you tell them D, and then you give them a test and you discover they didn't learn any of it. So then you have to do something else. What the concept that serves beginning teachers better is the idea that you take just a little bit of concept, just a little bit of knowledge, you just take A or maybe even take half of A, and you put it out there in front of your students, and then you pounce around on it from every point possible. And this is what is going to slow down instruction. You say it, you repeat it, you paraphrase it, you ask your students, to say it back to you. You say it again. You give them some application exercises. They work too. We check them on the board or whatever we do them as a class. I repeat it again. Then I have them do a few more application exercises. Then we check them as a class. I say it again. They work. And what you do, I repeat, is you take that little piece of content and you pounce around it, you show them pictures, you give them explanations, and then, and only then, you go on to be. So teaching is slower. Teacher talk is slower. High, it has low information density. Common experience uh, you may have had in college 
is teacher comes in on the first day or whenever and starts lecturing. So you're going to be a good student. You're going to take your notes and you start taking your notes and then you get farther and farther behind and you me, 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 and eventually you just give up. Or students may say to the instructor, wait, 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 you're going too fast. If you look at going too fast, it's not a matter of how fast you form words. You, the teacher doesn't need to talk more slowly. It's information density. The teacher is giving you way too much information, way too fast. And instead of putting that little bit out there and pouncing around on it, effective teaching teacher talk has relatively low information density. Low information density, thorough coverage. Again, pouncing around on A thoroughly. And you know, on the next day I may back up and review A. Pouncing around on A thoroughly before I go on to B. Thorough coverage. Checking comprehension. Now this is a theme, you should, you've heard this before. Uh, when we talked about giving instructions, you constantly check comprehension to make sure your students understand. All right, at that point, we've talked about what affects teaching, what doesn't affect teaching, what affects teaching, and teacher talk. All right, teacher talk, remember, more highly structured, more redundant, slower, much more explanatory, examples, questions, issues, repetition, paraphrase, application example, uh, application examples, lists of uh, this, that, and the other, first, second, third, do this, do this, do this, teach, 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 review, test, and they still didn't get it, so then you retest. Thanks, reteach, retest. Thanks, take care, bye-bye.